me to Galatians chapter 1. We will be in verses 8 to 10. I coached at a previous church. Uh, I coached when Peter and James, our first two adopted, they're 26 now. When they were in seventh, eighth grade, I coached their football team. And so I got to know a lot of their friends on their team, and two particular kids without fathers, um, friends of our sons, and so they were over at our house a lot. They ate at our house. One of them lived at our house for a time. And one of those, Marcus, we were going on vacation to South Carolina, and the boys, I don't know if they asked or whatever, but we asked Marcus to come along. And uh, so Marcus did. We had to go to his house and pick him up and get his stuff. And we went into the house. We were just, it was just a few blocks away from our house, nice neighborhood. It was just filth. No food. His bedroom, no furniture, no bed. He had like one change of clothes to take on vacation. His mom had struggled with addiction, in and out of jail, you know, boyfriend after boyfriend after boyfriend living in there. And uh, so that was Marcus's life. This book of Galatians is kind of akin to what Jeff said. It's like growing up in a good home. A home where you have a mom and a dad, pretty stable, there's food, clothes. It's not perfect. There's a lot of freedom, but there's lots of no's, you know. And sometimes the parents fight, but generally it's happy and, and good. That's the gospel, that. That's being a part of Christ's family. It ain't perfect, but it's so good. But what's happening in Galatians is there are people tempting them to go from that house to Marcus's and thinking Marcus's house is far better. To go from freedom of Christ and faith alone to the bondage of the law, which is filth like a crack house, and thinking that's far better. That's what's going on in Galatians. And now, the problem, of course, is that none of you ever think you would do that. You'd never made the goodness of a mother and a father and loving discipline and yeses and noes for the crack house. You'd never do that. But you would. And so part of the thing that we have to do as we go through Galatians is have the faith to believe that you would. So that's what we want to do here. In leaving the true gospel of the freedom of being a son or daughter of God through faith alone in Christ. Not because of you, but because of Christ and Christ's efficiency. Entering into the Father's home that you'd never be tempted to to go anywhere else. And what Paul is dealing with is that mess of speaking to the children, trying to call them back while disciplining those who tempted them to go from the goodness of God's house to the crack house of works. And so we have to see it like that. That's what's happening in this letter. And in our verses 8 through 10, Paul is having gently, kindly admonished the Christians of Galatia in verses 6 and 7. Now in 8, 9, and 10, he turns to those leading them astray, leading them from the goodness of the freedom of the gospel to the bondage of you doing it, you being a little better. So let's read. I'm going to read verses 6 to 10. We will pray, and then we'll get into it. 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. So the some are who he's going to be addressing in verses 8, 9, and 10. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I, were try, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, help us to have faith, to see rightly the temptation to consistently question your word. That whether it's relying on our own reason, our own intellect, having to make sure everything is agreeable to us, or whether it's that we just think that we have to do a little bit more to get over our guilt. We have to do a little bit more to be accepted to you. There's more rituals. There's got to be something more than simply faith in Christ. Give us the faith to believe the simplicity of this gospel of great freedom. And so help us, protect us. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Amos and Aaron got married yesterday. Uh, We've done premarital counseling with them. It's largely been a delight. But one of the things as we may have said, we try to do in premarital counseling is set right expectations for what marriage is going to be like. Because before you're married, you don't believe, you don't really have the context to understand some of the great difficulties that you're about to enter in, sometimes immediately after you say, I do. Same thing is true in the church. What is the church? It's a good place. It's a place where everybody has to be some kind of perfect. And the deal, I was talking about this yesterday at the wedding with some people, the deal that pastors make with the congregation, the congregation makes with the pastor is, as long as you kind of leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. As long as you pretend and go along with the charade that we're good, then we'll think you're good. And so the church is the place where you can't be a sinner. The church is a place where it's got to be absent of conflict. Everybody has to agree. Or at least we have to pretend that we're all getting along. And so there are two things in that deal that every church member believes. That we need to never fight over doctrine It's Jesus only. Jesus and maybe the prayer of Jabez. I don't know. Remember that? How many of you read that? I read that. Yeah, big deal. And so we just want to be Jesus only Christians. Never divide over doctrine. Never fight over doctrine. Whether with any yucky or mess. Everybody should be good. And we should never bother each other with any yucky or mess. But what is the entirety of the Bible but one long conflict between Satan and God's people, often fighting over doctrine. Especially in the New Testament, 
Every letter written to the church is about fight, about conflict, often doctrinally, and it can happen real quick. Notice again in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly. What does he mean there? He means that their turning to this other gospel happened shortly after they became a church, shortly after many of them accepted Christ and the church was established. Just a short time later, months, not years, there's a fight. And so I've heard from many of you of your gratefulness for this church, especially if you're newer here, that you're really glad to be a part of a church that is very welcoming and people are getting along and the pastor preaches absolutely perfect sermons every week. Right? We have a good church, don't we? I, we do. All glory to God. But you know how quickly we can lose it, right? You know how quickly it can happen. And so there is a need for diligence. So, and what we're seeing in Galatians is a pastor addressing that church that has lost it. In verses 6 and 7, as I said, he is gently admonishing, correcting them for how quickly they have been tempted to desert the simplicity of the gospel and turn to what they do, to works. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, he literally curses those who are doing the tempting. And so he's treating the sheep different than the wolves. In James 3, 1, we read that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that you, we who teach will be judged with stricter, great, or greater strictness. So he's doing that here. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works? That is, those who are in leadership in the church, who are teaching in the church. Lord, did we not? And Jesus said, I never knew you. And so there is false teachers and those who are the leaders, those who are leading others astray will always be judged more strictly than those being led astray. And so Paul is doing that in the matter of a short verses. He's turning from a, a rather gentle admonishment of the flock to cursing those attacking them. Cursing them for preaching a contrary gospel. That makes us ask, what is the gospel? Just turn with me, if you would, back a few books to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's just get straight again what the gospel is. Now, one of the things to realize in the church, that if it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it's not new. So the gospel will not be new to any of you. And if you ever hear a new gospel, it's, it's not true. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we read, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So the gospel comes from the Spirit-inspired prophets and apostles. It's preached. It's heralded. It's which you receive, so you need to respond to it in faith. And in which you stand, you continue on in it. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast. Well, what is this gospel? I delivered you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So that's the gospel. And that's it. Christ died and rose. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose. 
And what is happening in Galatians is that they're turning from that. So you might remember in the book of Hebrews, you have this um, issue of milk and meat. Hebrews chapter 5. Milk is this simple gospel. It's John 3.16. And a Christian never outgrows it. In 1 Peter 2.2, we're urged to be like newborn infants, longing for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you might grow up into salvation. You continue to need it. Now, you need more than the milk. You need meat. You need more doctrine. You need to continue to make progress in your understanding of election. But we should never turn from the milk. My sister Tiff just had her fifth last week. Yeah? And so that baby needs milk, right? Now, if you milk the, mix the milk with poison, that's not good for the baby, right? So that's what's happening here in Galatia. They're, they're mixing the milk with just a drop of poison. Milk is the truth of Christ and his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. The poison is just adding a little bit of works to that. And so Paul charges those who would add to the pure milk of the gospel anything else that they would be damned. That word, let them be accursed, which is repeated in verses 8 and 9, let them be accursed, goes back to the Old Testament. It's the word for that which is burned up in sacrifice to God. So Paul is literally saying, any who add to the pure milk of the gospel, anything else, may they be burned up. And to put it in more common language, may you go to hell. So we use curse words in our culture, and we use them very flippantly. We use them sometimes. I was walking through Hodeg the other couple weeks ago, and there was five or six young teens out there, and they were using very colorful language very loudly, where four-letter words were an adjective placed before every noun. But there are curses in the Bible reserved for very specific instances, especially when people are corrupting the gospel. And Paul tells us in verse 10 why they're doing it and why the people are tempted to follow them. It gets to what Pastor Jeff said. We want to be approved. We care much more for what people think of us than what God does. We fear man much more than we fear God. And so Paul turns it around and he damns those who teach falsely. And he says, so you think I'm trying to keep everybody happy? You think I'm the man pleaser? So that's what the false teachers were saying about Paul. The reason Paul only told you Christ crucified and risen is because he, he, he was afraid of what the Jewish Christians thought of him. He didn't want to tell you you needed to be circumcised too. He didn't want to tell you that you could eat this and not that. He was afraid of what people thought of him. So he only told you part. Well, here's the whole. And so Paul, very manly, very frankly, damns those who took, teaches falsely. And basically is saying, you think I'm a man pleaser? Not so. I'm a servant of Christ. Paul fears God more than man. So what I want to do is ask you to ask yourself, what do I need to do to protect myself? Or what do I need to do to protect my family? Or what do I need to do to protect the church 
against the temptation to add to the gospel anything. Remember in verse 6, Paul says that they've deserted Christ, they deserted God. In verse 10, he tells that they've done so because they desire to be pleasing to man more than God. So we've got this doctrinal controversy that's rather technical, seemingly confusing. How do we think of faith and works? This is the doctrinal controversy here. It's very difficult because everybody agrees that we need to do good works, right? But how do you think of good works in relation to being accepted by God? Do we or don't we need good works? Do we need good works to be accepted by God? Yeah, but no. No, not at all. But yes, you do. And so this is difficult. You'll have to think. You'll have to come under teachers who can help you think through it. But what will help you in this desire to be right in doctrine? Well, it always has to begin with love for Christ. In John 14, 23, Jesus himself says that if you love me, you'll love my word. And so it always has to begin with love for Christ. We love Christ and so we'll never turn from his word. We love Christ and so we'll not turn to anything that corrupts the pure milk of his word. You have to begin with love for Christ. Why? Because he died for you. Who else do you know that's done that for you? Who else, knowing who you are, would dare leave the glories of heaven and be spiked to a post naked in front of everybody else to make you acceptable to God? And so don't you love him for what he's done for you? It reveals who he is. Don't you love him? What's so magnificent about this is that Christ is God. And we were haters of God. And in that situation, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is why Paul is so astonished in verse 6 that they're so quickly deserting him. Because it's him! Because it's him who gave everything to save them. And they not only depart, but quickly. And so what's first happened is they don't love him. So do you love him? Do you love Christ? Do you have affection for him? Or is this just going through the motions? Is the Sabbath a day that you rejoice in because that's the day of days where everything else gets set aside to love him? Not that you don't love him the other six, but this is the day. Do you love Christ? We love the gospel because the gospel is Christ. So, some of you just graduated high school and you're 
going on to college or tech school or job or marriage and your parents are freaking out whether or not you're going to continue in Christ. Whether or not it's going to work out for you. So, younger parents of younger children, you'll get there and the one thing that you need to pray and work towards is that your children would love Jesus Christ. And that begins with you loving Jesus Christ. Your children will just mainly love who you love. They'll love what you love. And if you love yourself and if you love doing what you want to do and if you forsake God and worship for doing other things, if you consistently show them you love something else, they'll love those other things. And you'll be surprised. Why don't they love Jesus? So love Jesus. Those of you who are just graduating and moving on, and you're going to go to greater temptations than you faced being protected in your parents' home, love Christ. Love his people. That's what will keep you. <clears throat> what will keep you married in a very difficult marriage? Love. Love for Christ. Love that covers over the multitude of sins. Sins. So that's what Paul is getting at. Now, again, what Paul says to those who are attempting to veer the sheep from the purity of the gospel is shocking that they would be accursed. Now, we all have some, at least, understanding of how terrible and agonizing hell will be. In order for that to make any sense to you, you do have to believe the biblical teaching on hell, that it is a place of eternal suffering under God's wrath and away from the joys of his fatherly presence. I don't know that we can appreciate fully the terrors of that place. But what Paul is praying here to God is what we often see in the Psalms. God, send them there. Don't let them repent. They have done such harm to your sheep. They continue to do such harm to your people. And I think we'll only get that if we understand our need of Christ, and yet how attractive it is to think that we need something more than Christ. Okay, I was talking with uh, Joe and Sean Thursday night. I don't remember what night, Thursday. About Jordan Peterson. I read an article. No, no, I was listening to a podcast about why is Jordan Peterson so attractive? And I was thinking about Galatians, and I think these are related. I don't know if you know Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian psychologist who five or so years ago became very popular. Canada had passed a law requiring you to use the pronouns that an individual demanded you use of them. And if not, you could be punished under the law. So if a man wanted to be called her, and you didn't call him her, you could be prosecuted as a criminal. And Jordan Peterson, I believe at the University of Toronto, made a lot of waves when he said, uh, no. He's not a Christian. He's 
he stood firm. And, and a lot of young men, especially, he, he began to produce these very long YouTube videos, three, four hours long of going into the depths of who we are as humans and motivation. And he wrote a book, 12 Rules for Life. And the book is basically like, get yourself in order. Make your bed. Get up and go to work. Tell the truth. It, rather simple things, the things that need to be say, said today because they aren't said today and they're not valued today. And young men just flocked to him. Millions and millions and millions of views. And so why? Why is he so attractive to young men? Well, partly he's a father figure. He's like a dad who is teaching his sons to shave. And if you don't know it, young men love to be with their dads being taught to do things. But they don't have those dads. And so Jordan Peterson comes along and he's saying, Hey, son, make your bed. And then get out of bed and go to work. And cut your hair, you dope. And men just flock to him. And I think what's so attractive about Jordan Peterson, he's not preaching the gospel. He's preaching law. He's preaching being acceptable based on what you do. Just clean up. Just grow up. But you'll still go to hell. He's, he's appealing to that part of us that wants to be in control yet, that wants to earn, that wants to be accepted by what we do. It's a false gospel. Now it's helpful. And if a lot of young men would read the book and do it, our culture would be much better. But it cannot reconcile you to God. And the temptation here is that of ritualism. Let me explain what I mean. How many of you have a sense of your sin, this kind of latent feeling that you've done bad things and you're not quite made up for it yet. You, you, you haven't done enough yet. You desire salvation, but your sense of sin, your sense of guilt, your... You know, you, you need to be relieved from this sense of unforgiven guilt. Leads you to think, I got to do more. I've, I've got to perform a little bit more. I, yes, Christ, of course. But the only real solution ultimately is, I got to be better. You have a zeal for God, but it's not according to the biblical knowledge. You go about trying to establish your righteousness in of yourself. You want to come from under God's wrath that you know you deserve, and so you need to secure God's favor. Convinced of your own sin and your own danger, you struggle to obtain deliverance by and in of yourself. It's that sense that these false teachers were appealing to. It's that sense that Jordan Peterson is so appealing to young men to. Let me read this little poem 
by George Herbert. I think it'll strike home. He uses love capitalized in this to mean Christ. Love comes to me and bathes to me welcome. Christ comes to us, says come, welcome. And yet we say, we draw back, and my soul says, I'm guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, Christ, observing me, drawing back, draws nearer, questions me sweetly, do you need anything? So we're thinking we're not sufficient. I've got too much guilt, too much dust. We shrink back and Christ comes closer. And far from, clean it up, he says, what more can I do? What do you need? And we say, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm ungrateful. I'm unkind. I can't look on you. And Christ's love takes our hand and smiling says, who made your eyes? We say, truth, Lord, but I've marred my eyes. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And, and love says, and not know me who bore your blame, my dear, I'll serve you more. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. And so finally then did I sit and eat. That's what's going on in this gospel. We shrink back in our guilt, in our shame, thinking we must do more. There's more penitence. There's got to be something more I have to do. And all Christ says is sit down and eat. I'm sufficient. And that's what Paul's fighting here. That's what Paul's fighting here. He's fighting for them to come back to the freedom of the gospel, of free justification by free grace of God, by faith alone. Now, it is true, the freedom that we have in Christ is not to be used to serve yourself. It's not to be used to serve your flesh. It's not to be used to gratify your lust. It is to be used to serve one another in love and good works. That's true. But our freedom in Christ is always being tempted to go back into bondage, to move from the house of the goodness and freedom of God to the crack house. The bondage of tempting to think that you can't be acceptable to God unless you homeschool your kids or classically school your kids. To go into the bondage of I can't be acceptable to God unless I'm pro-Second Amendment, pro-Trump. Good things will not get you to God. The bondage of thinking that if I don't look good, if my house isn't constantly in perfect order, we, we just attach ourselves to all of these good things, but they become like controlling things. If we don't have them right and we don't have them in order, then we don't have God. And if I can do them and if I can do better, Now, why do we do that? Why are we so tempted 
to add to the sufficiency of Christ what we do. What Paul says in verse 10, it has something to do with being approved of man. We're man pleasers. We seek the approval of men. We want to be flattered. And we know that others want to be flattered. And so that's the contraction, the contractual, the contract we made with each other. We make with each other. We're so enslaved to this fear of what others will think of us, to the rejection of others, that we refuse to speak the truth in love. Later on in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul asks this rhetorical question, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Uh, we had a guest preacher last week, Pastor Joseph. And afterwards, I was talking with him about it, and I thought it was... Really excellent. And I told him that, and he said, I think I've made some work for you because some people are, you know, giving me the laser eyes. <laughs> you know, he didn't flatter you at all, did he? He loved you. He told you the truth in love. And did he become your enemy? Because he told you the truth. And he used so much scripture. I was almost ashamed that I don't use that much scripture. So you've heard more scripture this morning because I had to learn from Joseph. I should use more scripture. It couldn't be any more biblical than how he said it. He said it very tenderly, but very frankly. And so why would you reject it? Why would it make you angry? Well, isn't it because we care more what people think of us than what God thinks? And how can you be free from that? How can you be free from that? It's only Christ. That's it. It's only recognizing the depths of your sin and the acceptance that you have by, from God the Father through faith in Christ alone. So how do you come into church every Sunday? You come in having to keep the kids perfectly in order, though you spent the drive here screaming at each other. But then when you get here, it's got to be good because everybody's watching and I want everybody to think I'm a perfect father or a perfect mother. How can you be freed from that? It's Christ. How can you be freed from seeing somebody doing something that you know isn't right and harmful them and yet just being paralyzed and not saying anything. Do you know what I mean? This is what I struggle with. I see the lack of discipline in somebody's children. I see a wife that doesn't look like she's being loved well. Or I, I see something, but I don't say anything because I'm afraid. How do you get free from that? It's got to be Christ. That's it. It's this doctrine of justification by faith. It's that we are accepted by God based only on what Christ has done. And that's it. That's it. Let me say it another way. I think most of you would agree that this is not a perfect church, but praise God right now, it's, it's enjoyable to be here. <laughs> it's what you might call a good church. 
I know all of you don't think that, but you're wrong if you don't. One of the things that keeps Jeff and Mark and I and elders, but especially preaching, especially me up here, preaching truth, is that when I look out at some of you, there are some of you who are so tender of heart that I know you're taking God's word in and the first thing you're thinking of is, I need Christ. You're there are those who are grumbly, those who care way more about specks in the eyes of others than the planks in their own eyes. They don't come with much meekness but prickliness. They don't hate their own sin, but they're very impatient with the sins of others. The temptation for me and other pastors is to give in to you. And the only thing that keeps us from that are people who aren't like that, but who hate their own sin first and want to come and hear truth unvarnished. In love. And it's all of that that's going on in this. And it's all because of Christ. And so let's start at the beginning here at the end. That young man, Marcus. And the temptation to think that his home is more freer and more beautiful and more giving than the house of faith. What will keep you from going from that to that? It's got to be love for Christ. It's got to be that you see in him such worth and such beauty and such power and such glory that you want nothing else other than him. Because he is God. And his only genuine, true, sincere love for Christ because of what he's done that tells you who he is that is enough for you. And so is he. Let's pray. Father, help us in our weaknesses and our temptation to move off of the pure milk of the gospel and think that we, because of our continuing, undefined, low-grade sense of guilt and worthlessness and shame, that there must be something more if only I listen to that, or if only I do this and not that, then it'll fix it. May we, instead of turning to that and our works, turn to Christ. Please teach us that, because we love your Son. Because He is the sacrifice that alone makes an end of our sin and welcomes us to you. And so give us ears to hear that. Give us love for Him and Him alone. More love to Thee. So help us now, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.